1: Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to Rahul Sidhu, who is the founder and CEO of SpiderTech, which is a law enforcement software as a service company, uh, which he recently just sold. And uh, super excited. He is a recent transplant here to Arizona, and I just had a pleasure of... Uh, talking to him so Rahul how you doing
0: man I'm doing well man thanks for having me on
1: what's the story give me give me the give me this give me the breakdown
0: okay give me, uh, the, give me how the far so okay June 23rd 1989 <laughs> I was born <laughs> I took my first breath um no I look I, I've got public safety in my background and technology in my background for quite some time um The company itself started in 2015, I'll I'll talk about that. Basically, the idea here is that we wanted to bring this level of automated customer service to the public safety world for anyone who calls 911, for example. um, We wanted to bring it back to the the level that people come to expect as consumers when they buy something from Amazon or or order pizza from Domino's or a car from Uber. So essentially, if you think about that same mentality, when you order something and get that email, hey, here's your uh, you know, here's your order number, click here to track your order, your item's shipped, your item's delivered, fill out the survey, let us know how we did. We built that for people who call 911, for victims of crime, they'll get, as soon as they hang up the phone, they'll get a text, hey, here's your 911 call number, um, You know, someone's on the way, uh, there's a delay, or, or if you call, let's say, reporting a drunk driver, you'll get a text that says, hey, there was an arrest that was made, um, and if you, you know, if you have to file a crime report or something like that, it's, it's, you know, here's your report number, here's what you need to send your insurance company, a detective is assigned, an arrest has been made, a case has been closed, all of those, um, you know, essentially as notifications. And similarly, we're, you know, we also believe, just like the rest of the private sector, that you can't improve something until you can measure it. So, you know, the system automatically sends out surveys to everyone who interacts with a police officer, you know, and, and, and in some cases, firefighter, paramedics. And ask them questions like, "How is your interaction? You know, do you feel like you're treated respectfully? Whatever questions that agency finds important. Um, you know, the idea was kind of born out of a police car. I, I worked as a police officer in the past. I worked as a firefighter, paramedic, all that stuff. Um, and the idea that we needed to bridge that gap really resonated with me. So that's basically how it started.
1: Wow. So how did you, how did you go from you know, public servant, civil servant, being Captain America? to a a technology executive.
0: Um, Yeah, look, on the technology side, I was always like a little bit of a hacker growing up. Um, You know, I I, I started building my first video game with a friend of mine when I was in eighth grade. And, um, you know, I remember my parents were really mad how much time I was spending on the computer. And I had to show them that we were interviewed by PC Gamer, which is a magazine that they, like, allowed me to subscribe to back then. I was I finally got that, ep, like that, that magazine. And I'm like, look, I love PC this, gamer. Yeah. Yeah. That was way back in the day, but, um, I was like, yeah, look, I, you know, uh, this is a legitimate thing I'm doing. And so then they just let me have it, you know, they're like, all right, spend as much time on the computers you want for the most part. Um, had a little startup in high school that paid my way through college in the digital currency space before Bitcoin. And then Um, You know, worked on some apps here and there, like, you know, when in public safety, even when I was a paramedic, I worked on an app that allowed paramedics to send EKGs directly from the field to the hospital um, to cut down on the amount of time it takes to treat someone who's having a heart attack. And, uh, And so it was easy for me to kind of bridge the gap and then eventually marry tech and public safety. From a CEO standpoint, like running the business, that was a learn it as you go you know, process for sure. That There's no like CEO school. I will say though, the closest there is to that, um, I was able to do, I was very fortunate. Our first investor tech stars, um, is a, you know, it's a large, one of the largest tech sellers, like Y Combinator and tech stars are typically the two biggest ones. And, um, they put on a very good three month program in New York in 2015. Um, and they still do these programs around the country where they just, they introduced us to so many people. Like, I mean, they're like, oh, here's the CEO of the Huffington Post after Ariana. Here's the, um, you know, like here's, oh, it was just, it was investors and operators and all of that for three months. You'd meet so many people. I had to hire an assistant just for like that period of time to, to book all these meetings. And that was a drink from the fire hose version of how to become a CEO. And the rest of it, I just had to make mistakes to get there. Wow. So, yeah.
1: So you're working as a civil servant And then you make the jump into entrepreneurship, you get accepted to an accelerator. So did you know anything about like B2B SaaS and like building a sales organization? I mean, I'm sure you were the kind of the main sales guy at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't have any formal sales training. I I do think that the best CEOs in the world are inherently good salesmen. Mm -hmm. And actually to a level where I don't just mean it like they're charismatic, I mean, like they generally understand the methodology of completing a sale, uh, qualifying, like, you know, all all the actual things that matter. Um, and, you know, for me, I kind of I, I read about it and I learned it and I applied it to as many things as I could. Um, but I didn't have any formal training in any of these things. And I, I think most of the you know startup CEOs I've met are similar. You know, some of them do come from corporate backgrounds, but they find that most of what they learn in the corporate world is actually more of a hindrance to their ability to learn everything else they need because they're so specifically you know, set to applying a certain framework to how they think about things because they've been stuck in a box for so long. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things, you know, like I've spent some time instructing firearms and and one of the things I've learned is that someone who's never shot a gun before typically does a really, really good job learning Mm -hmm. um, because they don't have any bad habits and they weren't taught something and they're able to kind of learn from, from in a way that is organic to them. So um, I think that generally speaking, you know, like we... I didn't have, you know, I I feel like fortunate that I didn't have bad habits from other places. The jobs I've always had, um, as you know, uh, on the paramedic side as a police officer, have taught me things that I think are vital, how to manage stress, you know, how to be a leader in life and death situations, Um, you know, some aspects of game theory that's just far more critical. I mean, these little things taught me, I think, aspects of, of... Operating as a startup in a high-stress environment that I wouldn't have gotten from the corporate world or getting an MBA or any of these things. So I'm, I'm 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 happy and grateful for my background and even if I had to catch up on some of these other things, it you know it worked out.
1: So where did this level love for civil service come from? You're just an adrenaline junkie, aren't you?
0: No, I mean <laughs> I mean I, the older I get, the less I feel that way. But I, I will say um, it's it you know it's a family thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my grandfather was a uh, uh, a general in the Indian Army, and um, you know he was. Cool. You know my my family comes from public service. I, I've I've got uh, family members who were you know in the United States military that unfortunately uh, died overseas. I've got uh, family members who've run for elected office in the U.S. and and um, so there's always been this this emphasis on public service in my family, and um, it, you know definitely drew me to it. However, I would say public safety specifically. Um, Yeah, there's a level of adrenaline junkie in that, you know, there's there's a level of wanting to be what people call downrange or uh, be that the first person to the scene um, that that I wanted to experience. And I was fortunate enough in my career to experience it on, um, you know, briefly on the fire side, but longer on on the paramedic and rescue side and then the police side and and being able to be that person that, you know, someone called for help on their worst day was something that made me feel proud to go home and, and feel like I did something that day that mattered. Um, and I think I am I was more addicted to that than anything else.
1: Sure. Now, is there any part of you that... Uh, and do you still do any of that work?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm actually still a reserve uh, police officer in California.
1: Okay. Yeah. So basically they can call you, you know, do you do... You do is it like one week in a month? How does that work?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, so there's a certain amount of hours I, I got to do on a, a monthly basis. Um, they don't like... You know, they're not like calling me and I'm jumping out of a plane just to show up to someone's domestic violence call. Like that's not right. <laughs> but but I'll like schedule. Uh, Somebody's you know, not wearing
1: their mask. Like Yeah, come come in. I come in and
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, it, it's 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 more of like a, you know, they need help with something for our air support team over the weekend or, um, you know, there's an event or, or they, there's like special projects. I've been, you know, kind of focusing on doing some special projects for the agency that I work with and and. Uh, um, it's However I can contribute, this kind of thing. It's, it's the same deal. Like you're still, you know, completely sworn police officer. Sure. You know, it, it's the same job, but uh, the hours are different, yeah, I guess. Gotcha. And it's a lot more flexible.
1: And so you, you, you built this software company. You decided that, you know, the first responding entities needed a, a feedback loop, right? Yeah. They needed to become better. They needed to understand the pulse of, of the people that they served. Was, did the, did the agencies, did the safety agencies know that, or was that kind of like a challenger sale that you had to, you know, put upon them? Like, how did that, how did that resonate when you came and sold your bag of goods?
0: Yeah, I would say it was like a partial challenger sale. Um, You know, there's two things there. First of all, they knew the problem. Um, I was introducing them to them a solution that they hadn't necessarily all previously considered. You know, I I always kind of talk about the company in terms of our four fundamental beliefs. You know, the first one is something that my first uh, police chief had told me when he hired me. He said, what we have here is a bank of goodwill with the community. Every time you go out there and have a positive interaction with a community member as a police officer, you're making a deposit in that bank account. And we have to have as many deposits as we possibly can, because the most perfect agency in the world will one day have a withdrawal. And you have to cash that check. Yeah. So that, as a cop, made me feel like, okay, I can I I have every time I talk to somebody I have an opportunity to make a deposit. So that's the first part. The second thing is if you asked a police chief 10 20 years ago, "Hey, what is the main performance metric for you that needs to go well or you'll be fired?" They would have told you it's crime rates. But today they're going to tell you it's public perception. Mm-hmm. Crime rates inform public perception, but ultimately it's still public perception that matters, and they don't have a way to measure that. And we kind of took those two and made the third belief, which is that we believe fundamentally interactions between police officers and community members are ground zero for every improvement and decline in public perception. So we thought, how do we take that knowledge and essentially scale that up so we can optimize every interaction and make sure they're measured so that you can make differences and changes in how you do things. Um, Like every service organization has something like that, right? So that's when we built uh, spider out of the fourth belief which is that it's just inevitable that you have to bridge that gap between what the consumers come to expect from Amazon when they buy a sure. toothbrush and um, so the the uh, every these four fundamental beliefs every police chief I've ever talked to has already understood this you know they might not have articulated the way I've articulated but they felt the pressure of not you know of being basically uh, committed to a number that they can't measure, which is public perception, right? And they felt this, I, I am blind. I don't know what's actually happening in the field when, when every time my officer has an interaction with somebody. Um, so we sold them that feeling. We sold them that I was blind and I can see. And that resonated with them. There was always a concern, or, are we too early? Um, and and there was like a little bit of, are we too early because we have to integrate we have to bring cloud you know, to, to policing. And we were just on the forefront of bringing cloud to, to policing. There's other companies in the space that were are doing it at the same time in terms of just like showing them they don't have to host everything on premise. But the one thing you mentioned um, was feedback loops. And obviously, like, the, you know, they're all looking for feedback loops. But one thing we actually created that they weren't looking for that we didn't even think about at the time until we saw the effect it had on our customers is that we were creating dopamine loops.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So the same way that people are pulling up their Instagrams every day to see how many likes they got, and they're refreshing the page, and they're just hooked to this idea of dopamine, we wanted and we found that officers would be hooked to the idea of getting those positive survey responses. They would constantly look for, I just had a bunch of positive interactions. I wonder if any of those people left me a good you know, right. survey response. And when we started quantifying these metrics... In, in a world where uh, cops are told to do less like uh, the proactive stuff, you know, pull people over less, et cetera, the liability's too high. Um, they're trying to find other metrics to show that they're out there being good cops versus just being productive and proactive. Right. So that created like this, sc- like they're chasing a score. They're chasing points. Yeah, they're you scorecard up. Exactly. In a way that's benefiting the community. Just go out there and don't be an asshole. Be nice. Right. And, and you'll score, you'll get points here. And then, Culturally, that changes how agencies work. You know, it changes how these officers are out there doing their job every day. And I think um, that's probably one of the most important impacts I think we've had on the industry.
1: That's incredible. Just a side little sidebar that actually, you know, no one probably knew is that these guys actually are competitive and right and want to be. They want to be kept accountable. Right. Yeah. And in a good way.
0: Yeah. No. Of course. I mean, they they want to be able to show that they're. They're going out there and doing the right thing.
1: Because they're field service people at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there's not, you know, the, the, probably the only thing they're hearing is when something goes bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. And, you know, someone calling and complaining and like yeah. that's not, they never get any positive feedback.
0: Right. And I, it, like the positive feedback is very rare. It's usually in the form of some sweet old lady bringing cupcakes to the station. Sure. It happens every once in a while. And uh, if, you know, the idea is let's turn that into as many times a day as possible. You know, if you bring up that wellness, that morale within the agency, it, it adequately reflects how they go out there and treat other people. So it's important.
1: Cool. And then, so how did you find budget? How did you think about pricing in, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in an, you know, an agency that has a fixed budget? you know, you're taking money from somewhere else. How did sure. you think about all that?
0: Well, I would say, you know, there's there's definitely a dividing line, the 2020 dividing line that everyone's probably, you know, talking about when it comes to budget and pricing. It was a little bit more impactful for us because there's a political element in policing with 2020 that might not have been the case for other industries. But pre-2020... The defeat
1: the fund the police kind
0: of uh, initiative. Uh, well, yeah, but also like, you know, police reform as an overall topic and the importance that elected officials were... Putting into making things happen for police reform because this fits squarely in that in that category. Um, but before that, we really focused on efficiency gains and showing an, like essentially a, a at least a ten x ROI on uh, agencies who are trying to who are you know purchasing Spider Tech. Every message we sent, for example, had a direct impact on their where they were saving money and time. So I'll give you an example. One of the many messages that the platform sends is what we call a delayed arrival message. That's when the system is, you know, kind of indicated that an officer has not marked themselves on scene for some set amount of time. Let's say twenty minutes, a reasonable amount of time for, you know, um, you're waiting for someone to come take a report for your cold vehicle burglary, right? And um, it'll automatically send a text that says, hey, we apologize for delay. Let's say a hit and run. Actually, that's a better example. You're, you're waiting on the side of the road. We apologize for delay. You know, officers are en route. They're just high-priority calls, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you're no longer you know, here, click here. Number one, in a lot of cities in America, uh, I'll use Sacramento as an example, one of our customers, they have to... The the protocol there is if it's if it takes too long for an officer to show up, they have to the dispatcher has to pick up the phone, call that person, apologize, say hey, we you know we're we're working on it. Um, Now they don't have to do that anymore. So now you're saving x amount of dispatcher time. And in Tucson, uh, Arizona, for example, we're saving seventy thousand dollars a year just right there on that one thing. Wow. Um, And then.
1: Did you realize you're going to have that much impact on on financials?
0: That was the point. Yeah. I mean, we we, every message we sent, we had to go every time we decided we're going to build this we had to kind of work backwards and how much will this save. I and mean, that's part of the pricing exercise mm-hmm. and the market validation exercise. But um, it, that was part of it. The other part of it is, is I can't tell you how many times I've, as a police officer, driven across the city to get to a hit and run only to find out that that person who called never waited, they're gone, right? right. So you give them an ability to go like, I'm gone. Now you just added, you know, 15 minutes to my response time. If I or gave me 15 minutes to my response time back for the next call, I'm going to go to. Sure. Because that's a compounding problem with response times. Sure. You know what I mean? Um. So, you know, it, it's it's definitely something where if you add all these things up, they they save money, and then you start throwing liability into the mix, where it's it's one of those things. You know, are we? Are we, I mean, how many lawsuits are we avoiding when we're noticing that there's this one particular officer is constantly getting bad reviews and we're able to intervene on that person before a major complaint comes in? You know, these are all things that are a little bit like, different in terms of how you manage that ROI, but we wanted to make sure we're 10x at least on efficiency. After 2020, that changed because now folks were going out there and looking for ways to make that positive perception change, right? Right. Um, and ultimately, I think the people who decide what the budget is are the same elected officials that are going out there and promising change in in the police space. And being able to say, hey, we're going to make the cops more accountable and transparent, but also in a way that like makes sense, you know, it's mm-hmm. practical, um, was a big win for every city council. So we don't typically struggle at that city council level. Um, and I think chiefs know this. They know it's going to be easier to buy spider tech than like, you know, bulletproof vests, which are more necessary sure. you know, for an officer's job, unfortunately, but they know it's been an easier sale when they ask for the money.
1: Absolutely, um, and you raised money. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, They raised a like? few
0: rounds. Um, you know, it was interesting. Uh, we raised our pre-seed round in 2015 uh, with like Winklevoss Capital and, and a few other folks, uh, like right off the bat and uh, we didn't have a product yet. We didn't have any paying customers. It was just kind of a story raised about a million dollars. Um, and then we I, we were spending about, I had to pivot more than halfway into that burn uh, to something a little bit more specific to what we're doing today. Uh, but when we did, we had kind of an early market fit. We had you know paying customers coming on board. We were shortening government sales cycles, which was a big thing for venture capital in 2016, 2017, when they were just not wanting to do GovTech because they're so afraid of the sales cycles. That's changed now. Um, and then we raised another two and a half million with Alphabet's Sidewalk Labs and a, a few other folks too. Um, and I would say that it was it was definitely difficult. It was hard for me to see, like you know. Um, other companies in the space, you know, like where they're like Harvard grads and and uh, and and they were like, they just had a good family network and Harvard network, and they could raise millions of dollars just knowing the right one or two people. And then all it takes is one tier, one VC to come in and then signal it up for everybody else. And now it's yeah. just a hype train. It was hard for me to see that in other places and feel like we're struggling to make the metrics work. But I'm grateful that that's the way it happened because... We were able to raise pretty consciously only as much as we needed. And we had really good investors who always had our back. Mm -hmm. You know, we never had board problems in that sense. Uh, You know, when we wanted to, like everything we wanted to do, we were able to do it. We had control of that. And we didn't have to go through a massive amount of dilution and then play this nonstop game of growth in a way that might not make sense for our business. Um, and so the next company I, you know, I do, I, I'm, I'm still going to do it similarly where, you know, we're going to be careful about it and we're going to bootstrap as much as we can. And we're not going to get kind of stuck in that, that nonstop growth mechanism that might not make sense for the business.
1: Because you were able to sell.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, and you sold what year? Uh,
0: 2021, July oh. of 21. Okay. And it right. was officially when the sale happened. Yeah.
1: Nice. And who'd you sell to?
0: Uh, we sold to a um, first uh, term public safety, which okay. is a larger you know, a uh, public safety uh, company in the space, mostly in Canada, but a lot of the major customers in the US. Uh, and they were uh, owned by a private equity firm called Banneker Partners. So Banneker essentially uh, ran that process.
1: Got it. And so, Right. I mean, less money you take, the more options you have Mm -hmm. fundamentally, you know, less problems that you have to valuations that you have to grow into in order for a board to sign off on, on a sale. So you were able to sell, take chips off the table and do it again.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, You know, and I think that's definitely a hard thing to do. Like I reflect on it and think to myself, you know, of course we wanted to, we wanted to go bigger. You know, like if I, if I thought about it now, it's like, there are all these other things we could do to have gotten bigger. And and that's always, that's every founder's thought process, right? Is like, we, I wish we got bigger. I wish we did this. I wish we went to IPO, all those things. And that's, that's fair. That's okay. It was a good outcome for everybody. And I think it's a good home, the place, you know, verse terms, a good home for this. And I think, you know, they're going to take this and, and really make it to what it could be. Um, I I think that generally speaking, it's not, you know, it's, it's not something where, uh, Doing it again, I, I don't know that I want to sell early, right? Like mm-hmm. the, now it's like now I've got this yearning to go for broke on the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the thought process.
1: Any idea what you want to do?
0: Um, I've got some ideas, yeah. Yeah, the, okay. uh, they're, they're a little early. Um, you know, now... Having done this before, I, I know how to test the market, especially the market that I know, which is public safety, and uh, kind of get those early adopters, get everything lined up before I even write a line of code, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that that's, that's kind of the phase I'm in. And there's some stuff I might do internationally, too. Cool. Uh, but, you know, I'll take a few months off eventually. You know, nice. I'm, I'm still running the company today. So Absolutely. that's my main focus.
1: Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man.
0: You got it, it man. It, Thanks it, for having me. It was me. a
1: pleasure. Um, is there... We have a couple canned questions. Uh what is your favorite book?
0: Favorite book. Um you know actually I read a book recently that I I found fascinating. It was uh, it's called Sapiens. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um I like
1: hate read that. It was just so long and I was like I wanted to get through it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, honestly I thought the first half was drier than the second half. Um but uh yeah, no, it it, it was a really good book and it, it kind of helped Uh, Just just thinking about all of ancient history and how humans have developed, I think it helped put things into perspective how most things are the same.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, absolutely. And what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
0: Uh, The best piece of business uh, advice I've ever received was actually from my UX design uh, instructor when I was going through like a UX design course. Um, His name's Stephen Miranda. And he said... Uh, sorry, this was actually uh, Stephen Manetta and Scott Kruth, and Scott was the one who said this. He said, uh, "What you have, you know, when you're when you're building a product, and I thought about this generally as a business, you want to fall in love with the problem, but not the solution.
1: Mm. If you
0: stay in love with the problem, no matter what happens, you'll be ready to pivot. You won't be emotional. You'll be able to be rational, and you'll focus on that problem until you solve it, until you genuinely know it is solved." you can't fall in love with a solution
1: i love that yeah (laughs) i love that because then you're not going to be subject to founder bias exactly wow yeah awesome everybody thank you so much for tuning into the capital stack we drop an episode every tuesday we talk to founders entrepreneurs operators and investors that all things value creation. If you like it, please subscribe. I just realized I'm like number 98 on tech podcasts in India, so
0: I'm bo- I'm boosting your numbers, baby. <laughs> You're boosting. I'm my boosting nose. your numbers. You're boosting it up. Let's let's break 50. Yeah, we're gonna Indians. Bre- this is my call to you.
1: <laughs> like, please share. This is like we're gonna we're gonna blow we're gonna blow this motherfucker. Like, yeah. Re- 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 really hard. So, anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. If you like it, please subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.